it's a preliminary comment to make. It's, it's something that can be easily missed by someone like myself. Every Sunday, I'm across the hall uh, teaching Sunday school. Um, and it can be easily missed when you get to a place where you're talking about the things of God all the time. You forget James chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers, let not many of you become teachers, for you will incur stricter judgment. So I don't want the solemnity of this moment to be missed on myself, knowing that everything that I say here, God will take me into full account for, and rightfully so, because I was supposed to open up his word to you guys. But then there's the other side of that, that if I get up here and say what God has said, that if God speaks through my human and frail voice and you heard it, it leaves us all without excuse. So I, the solemnity that's not missed on me, I pray that the solemnity isn't missed on us, even though we gather here and do this every Sunday, that every single Sunday that the word is opened up to us, it's met with the same amount of seriousness because we need it. Second preliminary comment would be that uh, it's about to be a new year. Most of our world operates on a calendar called the Gregorian calendar. And what that essentially means is that we look at our world divided between a human's entry into the world. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. And that fact alone should say a lot to you about the man, that he's entirely unique What is it about him that allows us to regard our world according to his entering into the world? I was born in 1991. We don't care, by and large. But he was born in AD 1. We fix our time according to his likeness, and the question is why? Why does he get such a place of prominence in our world? And the only answer I could come up with, the only answer I could come up with for why we would call a couple hours from now, 2018, is simply because His person and his message are a revelation of God. His person and his message are a revelation of God. And what do I mean by a revelation of God? Well, what's a revelation? A revelation is a self-disclosure of yourself. I can pester you, I can bother you, but I cannot get anybody to give me their true selves. I can't. That's a personal and private matter. And what Jesus did through his person and his message is he disrobed God. As John says, In the first chapter of his gospel, he says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God or the only unique God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Or in other words, he has revealed him to us. And that's altogether unique. That's altogether strange. Because leaders in general, their powers and their presence or their stare, them being personally and physically around. You take, for example, uh, any parent here who has children. Your power in this sanctuary is that you're right next to your child. And if your child gets to fool around too many times, you easily give them that evil eye, that look, that essentially says, if you don't stop acting like an idiot, my hand will greet you, right? But if you're not in this room, if you're not physically present, your evil eye is to no effect. It has no power because your power is in your presence. Your power is in you physically being there, but it's not so with Jesus, And as a matter of fact, there are more believers in him in his absence as he sits on the right hand of the Father than when he was actually here. In this room right now, there are more than 40 people, far surpassing the amount of people in that upper room on the day of Pentecost. But he's not here. 
It's been 2018 years since he's come into the world and roughly the same amount of time since he left this world. But more people believe in him in his absence than in his presence. And he didn't do it with fear like a Napoleon or a Hitler or a Mussolini, but he did it with love. That's unprecedented. That's not normal. That speaks to his uniqueness altogether. But guys, as as we sit on the precipice of a new year, it's almost as if he didn't come at all. If I look at the world and I look at the church, I'm not exactly enticed to say that this next year, in a couple hours, it's going to be the 2018th year of Jesus. Look at our world and our church. Our world. Our world imagines it's post-truth. We imagine we're past truth, but our world is in need of big truth. Our world is in desperate need of a referee, somebody to call the shots and say, this is this and that is that. Because quite frankly, at large, we're struggling to figure out what we're going to do in all realms. You take the past year's election, for example. Fake news, misinformation, what was in her emails, did he collude with Russia? We want to know. We're struggling. We want to find out. It matters to us. Is this true? And what's so miserable is that the church, which is supposed to be the pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, the church was just supposed to exalt the truth and defend the truth, embody the truth to the world, to be the light on a hill. What does Peter say in, in the second chapter of his first epistle? He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. But is our church doing that? No. I argue publicly and privately, we're struggling mightily as a church. Publicly. You could take politics again, this past election. Last election, you had two professing Christians running for office. Pick whatever one you want. Both of them had spiritual advisors. Both of them pastors. Clinton had a man named Bill Shillady, a Methodist pastor with a large congregation in New York. He wrote a book of Christian devotionals that were taken off of shelves all over America. Why? Extensive plagiarism. Secular universities don't even tolerate that. Now, on Trump's side, you have his spiritual advisor, Mrs. Paula White, a Pentecostal preacher of sorts. Now, this woman, for years, admits to preaching a gospel that essentially says that if you do not give me money, God will not bless you. She recently, in 2017, NBC News did an interview with her where she renounced that gospel. She admitted that in her 20s, 30s, and 40s, she's now 50, she used to preach this gospel, but she doesn't anymore. And I say to that, amen. But I'm also waiting on her to return the fortune that she made off of it. I'm waiting for her Zacchaeus moment. So we're failing publicly, and privately, what do you get? First Peter, again, chapter 4, he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. But we struggle with love. We struggle with love in church. Small group attendance is sporadic. Your prayer meeting is weak and small. We struggle. Christian maturity, low. We struggle. We struggle. And so it leaves the question, why are we struggling? If we have the truth, if we have this Jesus, if a couple hours from now it's going to inaugurate the 2018th year of our Savior's reign on all humanity, then why would we be struggling? Is it that he preached a truth that is inconsequential? Is it that he preached a truth that was a lie? Is it that he preached a truth that solved a problem for a period of time, but since then humanity has evolved and we found bigger problems? 
I submit to you that the problem is not our truth. The problem is that we deal so little with our truth. The problem is, is that we've put the truth in a Ziploc bag and tucked it away and we say we have it, but the truth is not meant to be dealt with. The truth is not meant to be dealt in in that way. The truth is meant to be handled, touched, and pressed to your heart. Christianity is not a textbook answer. It's the life of God living in the soul of a man. It's not something that comes out of your mouth. It's something that lives in your heart. So that's why I chose my text, John chapter 3, verse 16, because it is the perfect summation of the gospel, our Christian truth. And though it's an old revelation and the year is going to be a new one, it's, it's still relevant and it's still the most thing needful. Can you join me in prayer? God Almighty, I still believe you're almighty. I still believe, Lord God, that we are eternal souls and where we go after we die is of the utmost importance. Lord God, and I have no doubt that there's many people in here who believe the very same thing. Lord God, I need your presence to fall upon me in this service and to fall upon us all, to open up hearts of stone and to prick hearts of flesh. Lord God, we need you. Lord God, I have no need to defend you. You are a lion. I simply open up the gate and you come out. Lord, I ask that you use my mouth, that my mouth function like a gate. And that to the old and the young, this message, this gospel message is clear. It's clear and profound. In your holy name we pray, almighty Father. Amen. If you would open up your Bibles, there's a pew Bible. If you can open your Bible to page 862, or John chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 to 16. When you've arrived there, could you say amen, unless you're using the screen? Are we good? Yes? Thank you, Judy. Appreciate it. All right, guys, here we go. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 16 reads, Now there was a Pharisee named, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who had come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can these things be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. In our main text, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. One more time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever 
believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, what is the experience, what is our experience with that text, John 3.16? Over the past 40 years, I put a quick slide together to walk us through the last 40 years of John 3.16, the most popular verse of all time. Here's what you got. Far left, 1970s and 1980s. You get a guy named Roland Stewart, who had a bright idea of putting up a placard wherever he was going, at all sporting events, with this John 3.16 to spread the message of the gospel. And then the 90s, you get this guy, Stone Cold Steve Austin, who makes a shirt, Austin 3.16. I want you to know, as, as of 2012, this is the most popular WWE shirt all time. All time. Austin 3.16. They did an interview for him in 2012, and they asked him, you know, why Austin 3.16? And he put it like this. He said, yeah, there's John 3.16, but I got my own book, Austin 3.16. And Austin 3.16 is prophetic, and it says it's going to whoop your butt. Someone asked, don't you think that's a little offensive? He says, no. If anybody thinks it's offensive, they can blank off. I'll let you imagine the blank. Then down to the left, you have Tim Tebow, college football star, uh, great athlete, He was a Florida Gator, played quarterback. He won the Heisman, and he would put verses under his eyes, and he put John 3.16 one time, and 94 million people looked it up during the game. And then, lastly, John 3.16 is under every single Forever 21 bag, which is a clothing industry very popular here and over on the other side of the world. Now, this verse is incredibly popular, but what is the result of its great, great, great popularity? Next slide. This feeling. Quote John 3.16, you must know so much about the Bible. It's become such a popular verse that the world at large doesn't feel the force of it anymore. It, it doesn't really matter anymore. It's become almost a meme and a caricature. We just kind of throw it at people, like John 3.16, believe in God, as if it's an incantation. We've come to distorted views about what it is and what it's all about. And so I want to recapture it. What is John 3.16 actually saying? What it's not is, as we read, it's not a standalone statement. John 3.16 isn't just one line. It's a part of a conversation between two men. John 3.16 also isn't an incantation. It's not a, a thing that you whisper and that people don't have to really think about it, that you can just say it to somebody and they're just going to catch the Holy Ghost. No, it's something that has to be explained. It's something that has to be opened up. That's how the Bible works. God gave us reasoning. We're supposed to explain it to people. So what is the proper setting of John 3.16? Again, John 3.16 is a tense conversation with a prototypical man and the Son of God. Again, John 3.16 is a tense conversation between a prototypical man and the Son of God. So I'm going to divide the text in three ways. First, for God so loved the world, which is love professed. Secondly, that he gave his only begotten Son, love proved, Thirdly, even though it all says one, I apologize, love's gift that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. One more time, love professed for God so loved the world. Two, love proved he gave his one and only son. That is the proof of his love. Three, love's gift that whoever believes in him shall not, have, shall not perish but have eternal life. So the first one, love professed. What is this profession of love? Well, guys, it says, for God so loved the world. In order for me to understand this love, what, in the, what is the world? What is a good example of the world? When John says the world, what he means is 
humanity, humanity at large. And this Nicodemus, who's taking part in this story, there's no better example than this guy. He is the quintessential example of the prototypical human being. Now, he's a Pharisee, and as a Pharisee, and he's also one of the head of the Pharisee, and that means he has memorized the entire Old Testament. And I'm sure none of us here have memorized the entire Old Testament, but I consider that to be a superficial thing. In his heart, Nicodemus is a very proud man. He's not a humble man. He's self-satisfied, and he assumes, he assumes spirituality. We find out three things about Nicodemus. Look at verses 1 and 2. Look what it says. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. Now, it seems that Nicodemus is being a nice guy. It seems that he's putting Jesus in the proper place, but he's not. Nicodemus has three problems, which are common to all men. One, he doesn't speak for himself. Two, he thinks too highly of himself. Three, he thinks too little of Jesus. One, examine, he doesn't speak for himself. Notice, he comes to Jesus at nighttime, and he says, Rabbi, we know. We. But he's by himself. We do this. You read something on Discovery Channel, and they'll say, scientists are saying. Who are these scientists? Or people now believe. Who are these people? Who? Show me. Where are they? Or if in Sunday school, you you should pop in sometime, the children never refer to their own opinion. They say, well, people think. But that is not the way we come to God. Everybody has to come to God as an individual. God despises it when we try to do it in mass. When we came in the world, one, we will go, one, and we need to meet him, one, at a time. So he doesn't speak for himself, which is quite offensive. Nobody likes it when you have a problem with a coworker. there's some rift at work, and someone comes to you and says, hey, Jeff, people are saying, people? Which people? Who are you talking about? Bring those people here, right? So imagine you're God, and a man is coming to you, assuming spirituality, and he says, we, we, we've come to know. But what does he come to know? The second thing is he thinks too highly of himself. We're so, we're so bent to think too highly of ourselves. Listen to what he says again. He says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He says, listen, we've been watching you. We've been examining you. You're a pretty cool guy. Water into wine. You healed that blind guy. You got to be from God. Our deduction reasoning skills are A grade. Okay? And, and listen, we get it. We get it you're better than us, you're like a prophet, we haven't seen one in 400 years, okay? So we're going to call you our teacher. I'm a teacher in my own right, but I'm going to call you rabbi. You're going to get a nice, highly exalted place. We do the same thing, guys. We do the same thing. People say, oh, I'm on my faith journey. You know, I'm just choosing, you know, a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that religion. I'm just testing the Bible out. But that's not the way to approach God. If God is God and he's our creator, you don't test him out. A baby doesn't come forth from its mother's womb, come out of the womb and say, let's see how this goes. Give it a couple weeks, you know, feed me, burp me, and then we'll fall into it. And in the same way, God is our father. He created us. So for us to come forth and to say, we've been watching you, we've been examining you, and you, you've, you've, you seem all right to us. You can be our teacher. That's, that's all the wrong approach. But then lastly, he thinks too little of Jesus. He thinks, he thinks he's doing Jesus a favor. He says, you're a teacher from God. 
you know, you're not like us. You know, us, you know, we're Pharisees, Sanhedrin, you know, Sadducees, and we know our word. But you, man, you're like a prophet. You're like Malachi. Jesus isn't content with that. Jesus says, I'm God. John 8, 24, he says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Or John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. He's not content. Jesus Christ is not content to just be a little higher than the rest of us. He's not content to be the person that we tag on at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name, amen. He's only content with his rightful place, God. Plain and simple. Not a good moral teacher. Not a guy who said some nice things that only if our government applied them, our world would be a better place. No. He's to be God to us. But how does Jesus respond? When Nicodemus comes to him with such, such dishonesty, such shadiness, such fickleness, how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds with divine revelation. Nicodemus says this to him, and Jesus responds like this. He goes, very truly I say to you that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It would have made sense if Nicodemus had asked him, how do I get into heaven? But Nicodemus didn't ask him. He just responds like that. Why? What Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to humble Nicodemus' pride. Pride. This sick sin that sits at the seat of everyone's heart, this pride, he needs to humble Nicodemus' pride. He says to Nicodemus, you think you know, but you don't know. And I need to get you to understand that you don't know. The greatest act of love that I can give to you is to show you that you do not understand God at all. That you are completely mistaken. You think I've come from God. You think, I've properly, you th- you think you've properly deduced this, but you are way off. Nicodemus, you think that you're into heaven. You think you're on God's favorite list, but you are not. There are matters about this life that you simply do not understand. And again, it's the same with us. We're all born with our own theology. We're all born with our own understanding as to how we think the world should work and who we think God should be. Why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Why is the sky blue and not red? Why is water wet? Why has God made the world this way? Why does predestination even, why is that a real thing? That doesn't make sense to me. And we sit in judgment upon God when it's actually supposed to be the other way around. It's supposed to be the other way around. So Jesus humbles Nicodemus. And look at how easily Nicodemus' humility is exposed. Look how exposed it is. The next verse, verse 4, what does Nicodemus say? How can these things be? A man cannot be born when he is old. Two verses ago, Nicodemus, you were saying, you're my teacher. Two verses ago, you were exalting Jesus. But now Jesus has exposed you. He's exposed your prejudice. He lets you see, you don't really believe in me the way you think. And now you're questioning him. Now you're cavilling against him. Now you're at odds against him. Again, it's not supposed to be this way. So we see the world, that Jesus died for a world that's prideful, arrogant, against him. And God says that I love this world so much. But now the second point, how? How have you loved us? The second is love proved that he gave his only begotten son. Now, the, now the, the question we'd ask ourselves is this. God, how have you loved us? 
I was reading New York Times, and there was a woman with a top comment by all, most liked, after the shooting down in Texas in the church. And you know, everybody was saying pray, hashtag prayer, hashtag pray for Texas. And the top comment on New York Times was, I'm tired of praying. Those people were praying, and they died. If God really loved us, why didn't he save them? And that's the way it's easy to feel. God, if you love us so much, then why is our world the way it is? God, if you love us so much, why did I grow up the way that I grew up? God, if you love me so much, why is there so much pain and unrest in my home and even in my heart? God, I don't see your love. First things first, we need to realize this is not a new question. Malachi chapter 1 verse 2, it says, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? It's an old question. It's an old question. It's not a new question. It's not a for the times question. People have always asked that question. God, in what way have you loved us? God saying, I loved you. Jesus says, for God so loved the world. And man replies back, in which way? I don't see it. Where's this love? I don't feel it. I submit to you that we're looking for love in the wrong place. We're looking for it in the wrong place. We're like a small child who's desperate and needy for toys, 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 toys. All they want is toys. And their parents say, I just can't give you toys. You need food. And when the food comes, they say, no, toys. But they need food. Without food, they die. They don't understand that this is the parents' love towards them. They love toys so much, all they want is toys. We love our peace. We love our security. We want everything to be right. And when things go wrong, we say, God, you don't love me. And God says, you're looking at the wrong thing. My love for you, my dispensation of love for you is not in the car that you'll drive or the ease of your marriage even or the food on the table even or even your health. My love for you is that I sent my son to die for you. That, that and that alone is the greatest declaration of my love. You say, God, why couldn't you have created a world where Jesus died for us and you give us all those things? Jesus says, read your Bible. Genesis 3, I made the world the right way. You, because of your lust, sought other things, and you corrupted the world. And since then, I've been trying to get you back into a proper relationship with me. Like he says in Genesis 3, we misunderstand his love. For years, I would read these verses in Genesis 3 and think to myself, God is a mean brute. He kicked us out of the garden. But when I read it again, I realize it's the kindest thing he could have ever done for us. Look at what he says. Verse 22, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take and eat also from the tree of life and live forever. So he drove the man out of the garden Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And he stationed at the east of the garden a cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Again, as a child, I'd read that and I'd say, God is mean. He kicked us out. Why doesn't he want us to eat the tree of life and live forever? But saints, realize, if we ate that tree of life in that garden, in our corrupted state, the, li- the miserable lives that we're living right now, we would live that life for forever. We would never get an entrance into heaven with this dirty, sinful, disgusting body of flesh. We must die. This body must go. He must give us a new body. So in his loving wisdom and patience, he says, I have to kick them out. 
They disobeyed me the first time. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now they're corrupted. So now I have to kick them out because if I let them eat from the tree of life, me, their father, and my children, we can never be together. But I want to be with my children. I want to be with my children. But the world doesn't see this, guys. The world doesn't see this. We don't understand this. We think that God's love is displayed to us in the things that we have, but it is not. God's love is proved to us in what he did for us in the sacrifice of his son because it dealt with sin at the root. It dealt with our hatred of God at the root. All of our problems stem from sin. Things can happen in my life, circumstantial things. I can get over those, but the slights of other people, or the wrongs that I've done to other people, that's what causes me the most pain. That's the thing that I need the most amount of forgiveness from. That's the thing that Jesus seeks to solve. World hunger, issues about global warming, if whether you believe it's police brutality or not, racial divide, those are issues of sin. Those are issues of pride. If God gave us more food and more money, it wouldn't, it wouldn't do anything to solve our biggest issue. And so his proof of his love is the fact that he sends his son to die. Now, the third thing, and the most precious perhaps, is love's gift. What is love by us? It says that, so whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And the question becomes, what is this life? What is this belief? Now, John 3.16 is arranged a little weird. It doesn't exactly lay forth the way believe needs to be put forth. It says, so that whoever believes in him, but what it really is saying is that whoever continues to believe in him, whoever continues to believe in him, whoever continues to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, those are the people who have eternal life. It's a big, it should be a big point to us all here, many of us who are professing Christians, that our faith is not a one-time, easy-believe decision that we once made. In this new year, the vigor in the life of our faith will be if we continue to see the cross of Christ in all that we do and say. The vigor in the life of our faith is actually going to be if we see Jesus Christ die on the cross and apply his blood over our sins every day. Many are mistaken about the love of God. They think that Jesus' death on the cross purchased God's love, but it did not. It is because God loved the world that Jesus died. And when I feel guilty about my sin, I don't bring my sin to the cross. I don't bring my sin to the cross. I don't tell God about the sin that I've done, unloading on him as if now he's going to take it. It's a thing already done. It's past tense. The whole verse is in past tense. For God so loved, loved the world that he gave his only son. He's speaking to Nicodemus as if this has already happened because as far as God is concerned, it is already done. Just like Genesis 3.15, and I will put hatred between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He shall bruise you on the head, but you shall bruise him on the heel. Since Genesis 3.15, when he proclaimed the gospel originally, Jesus knew this matter is already done. So as saints, when we're burdened down with guilt, We can't seem to find our way out to a clear conscience. We come to the cross of Jesus Christ with our guilt. 
We look at the cross and we see in crimson red our exact sin, the very thing we did in darkness that no one knows about, and we see a nail driven right through it that it's already paid for. And upon seeing that, I leave my guilt there and I move on because it's already paid for. That kind of living is a whole different life. That kind of living is a life indeed. It frees you from all the burdens of guilt and shame that keep us from living true and authentic lives that we were made to live. It leaves us in a place where we are constantly striving in other areas, but never touching the pain points of our heart. This is life indeed. Last illustration. If we could go to John chapter 19. Two other times in the Bible, Nicodemus shows up. This is the last time Nicodemus shows up. John 19, if we could read verses 38 to 40. Here's what it reads. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took away the body. Now, here's where Nicodemus shows up. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and alloys in about 75 pounds. Jesus taking, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. Now, if we want to know what Christian life looks like in 2018, I find no better example than this right here. I don't know exactly what Nicodemus felt in the very moment that he heard John 3.16. I don't know exactly what he felt in that moment, but I know what John 3.16 ultimately did to his heart. I know what the revelation of God ultimately did to his heart. If you examine, do you see what Nicodemus gave up in this scene? When Nicodemus first came to Jesus, he came to Jesus at nighttime because he was embarrassed and it, was, it wasn't cool and it wasn't proper and it was downright dangerous to believe in Jesus. But after he puts Jesus to death and his heart is pierced with the grief of his sin for killing God himself, God the Son himself, Nicodemus has a complete change of heart. And that change of heart prompts him to do a few different things. One, you notice Nicodemus now comes to Jesus, but he doesn't come at nighttime. He comes during the day. Jesus died during the day. And where he was once before, before ashamed, then he came at night. Now he comes in the day. In the day for everybody to see. In the day for all of his Jewish counterparts. People he's run with all his life. His, his, his fellow rabbis. The people, you know, his, his cultural center. The people he really cares about their opinions. The people who killed Jesus. He picks up Jesus' body and he gives him a king's burial. That is a clear sign for all that Nicodemus has had a change of mind and a change of heart. But the second thing, Nicodemus before came alone, but now he's with a man, Joseph of Arimathea, carrying 75 pounds. He probably has servants with him carrying these things. Nicodemus doesn't care who sees anymore. Why? Why does Nicodemus care anymore? Why has Nicodemus forsaken everything? Nicodemus gives it all up because now he realizes he has the most important thing. He realizes he has life and he has life indeed. He realizes that he has eternal life, that their opinion means nothing to me. Jesus has died for my sin. I am bought. I am purchased. I am finally at a right relationship with God. The shame that he felt to be a part of the group of people that put Jesus to death, that shame wasn't more than the grace of God's love. 
The body that he put to death, he also picked up because he knew that was a part of the scheme of his own personal salvation. Saints, the whole method of my speaking to you today is to articulate this one truth. In 2018, we have no need for a new gospel. We have no need for a new method. Our waning religion has no need for any new design. We, need the, we just need John 3.16 again. And we need it to come to our hearts personally, in a personal way, where we ourselves, we view ourselves as Nicodemus himself. We can see him in our own place. And we can understand that indeed Jesus Christ has died for me. For past that guilt and the shame, that's power to live. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. And Lord God, I ask that you'd bless these words, that they would prove a balm to a hurting soul, that they would allow us to mend and to grow and to champion your holy name, that we would no longer cower in the face of sin, that we would no longer hide our sin and put it under shame and guilt, but instead, Lord God, we would bring our shame and guilt to the cross and see our sin hanging there with no power and no victory over us anymore. Lord, give us a heart and a change like Nicodemus and reveal to us your holy word just like you did, Nicodemus. For in those words and those words alone is our life and our godliness in 2018. In your holy name we pray, amen.